You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. a question uh, to the parents in the room. Parents, you ever, um, uh, let me figure out a way to say this so you don't get arrested. You ever uh, <laughs> want to teach your kids a lesson, uh, but you got to sit them down and kind of draw it out a little bit, right? Like, it's kind of like reciprocating what our parents did to us. Like, my girls all the time, will, will, they'll do something like, you know, punch the neighbor in the face. That happened yesterday, right? And then it's like, I got to sit you down and like, I got to talk you through this. But as I'm talking my 10-year-old through it, she'll say, okay, dad, like, just get to it. Just just get to it, dad. Come on, like, I know there's a lesson in here, but just get to the, to the lesson, right? Parents, anybody ever deal with that? Yeah, yeah. But, but we make them listen anyways, because I'm going to get to it. And this is kind of what this text that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks is like. The book of Ecclesiastes is found in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And some commentators, some theologians have suggested that in the canonization process, the process of putting the 66 books of the Bible together, they were like, this book doesn't belong in here because it's so unorthodox. The book is like an enigma, a mystery wrapped in a riddle. But kind of like my lessons to my girls, you got to stick with it. You got to push through it because God is trying to say something. God is saying something to us as we dig in a little bit deeper into this word. So join me as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to do 18 verses this morning. Come on, 18 verses as we read these together. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the digital Bible next to me. It says like this in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the north and it goes around to the north. Excuse me, the wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around it goes. And on its circuit, the wind return. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that has been done under the sun. 
It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And, our, and, and my heart has a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What is the writer trying to tell us? To get the fullness of the text, we've got to understand who is writing this, when they're writing it, and who they are writing it to. So let's look at verse 1 in Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This word preacher is translated as gatherer or a leader of a congregation, or, or perhaps even a philosopher or professor. This man writing this book is Solomon, son of King David, King David who slayed Goliath. And in the weaning moments of David's life, he called his son Solomon to his bedside, and he gave him some instructions. He told him, son, do not live your life as I have lived mine. Do not make the same mistakes that I have made. Though David slayed Goliath and did, Goliath and did many things, David lived a fractured life. And he tells his young son, Solomon, obey the Lord's commands. In 1 Kings chapter 2, that is what David tells his son who is about to be king. Then in 1 Kings chapter 3, God comes to before Solomon in a vision. He has this kind of Aladdin moment where God stands before Solomon and he says, Solomon, choose whatever it is you want and I will give it to you. Anything you could have in the whole wide world. Imagine if God this afternoon came to you and said, anything you want in the entire world, I will give it to you in this moment. Of all the things that Solomon could ask for, Solomon asked for the ability to discern between good and evil. He asked God for wisdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, God bestows wisdom upon Solomon like wisdom no one who ever has or ever will walk this earth attain. But then God says, Solomon, because you asked for wisdom and it is so wise and so smart that you asked wisdom, I'm going to give you everything else you didn't ask for. So Solomon becomes a master architect. Solomon commissions buildings and temples and citadels to be built. If you made your way to Palestine today, you could still see remnants of things that Solomon commissioned to be built thousands of years ago. Solomon in today's currency was the richest man to ever live, many archaeologists and theologians tell us. In today's currency, Solomon would have been worth between 1 and 2.1 
trillion dollars. He had it all. Solomon had the pleasures of this world. The preacher had the pleasures of this world. Solomon, get this, had 700 wives. Yeah. The guys in the room are like, I'm just trying to hold on to the one I got. This man had 700 wives, one of them being the princess of Egypt. On top of that, the preacher, the professor, the philosopher Solomon had 300 concubines. What's a concubine, Carl? I, I, this is all the study I got. This is what a concubine is. A stripper girlfriend. 1,000 women. Feminists, send your emails to Pastor Brian. This is just in the Bible. I don't know what to do with this. What's this telling us? It's telling us that Solomon had all the pleasures in the world. All the pleasures that could be imagined. And here Solomon writes this letter at the end of his life. In the book, a book of wisdom. When I think about Solomon, I think about one person. I think about this guy right here. You guys remember this guy? He was the uh, spokesman for a certain adult beverage. He was called the most interesting man in the world. This is Solomon. The most interesting man in the world. So if the most interesting man in the world is speaking, do you think we should pay attention? Right from verse one, he's trying to capture our attention, say, listen up. So what do you have to say to us, King Solomon, the most interested man in the world? He says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In the text, whenever you see a word said three times in concession, that is the writer trying to bring a sense of importance to us. This is like the ancient Jewish way of adding multiple ex exclamation points or like some of you, like sending emails in all caps, right? It is vanity of vanity, all is vanity. 38 times that word is said in the text. Do you think it's important? The Hebrew translation comes from the word habel. Habel meaning vain, meaningless, vapor, mist, or mere breath. Habel, 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 habel. Solomon is saying all of it. It's meaningless. Are you encouraged yet? See, friends, Ecclesiastes is filled with what we might call true lies. True lies give the perspective, this true lie gives the perspective that God does not matter. This is why people say this is an unorthodox book. Because what the writer is saying, what King Solomon is saying, is God does not matter. And if that is true, then all is, in fact, 
vanity. All is, in fact, meaningless. But this perspective is wrong. It is a true lie. But yet Solomon goes through the labor throughout this book to give this wrong perception so that you and I can focus and decide what really matters in this life. What is it that truly matters in this life? There's this juxtaposition throughout the text that Solomon keeps driving the point home so that his young readers that he was writing to and us thousands of years later can go, and what's the meaning of this life? Solomon goes in verse three. He says this, and this is verse three, this first part. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. 25 times we're gonna see that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon is calling our thoughts, our mind's eye back to Genesis. In Genesis 2, where God takes Adam and God puts Adam in the middle of the garden, God says to Adam, Work and care for the earth. Work and care for the earth. But then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are deceived by Satan. Adam and Eve take the fruit from the knowledge of tree and good and evil. And God comes in and God finds them naked in their shame. And God dispels them. God expels them from the garden. And God says to them in Genesis 3.19, he says, Adam, from the sweat of your brow, you will get your food from the ground. God is saying from your toil is now where your sustenance is now where your nourishment is going to come from. You're going to have to work for it. What is God saying? God is saying outside of my presence is where the difficulty lies. Outside of my order is where the difficulty lies. Outside of my command is where the difficulty lies. Verse 9 what has been will be, and what has been done is done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon's telling us, when I live outside of the command and presence of God, this present reality under the sun, S-U-N, is hard, is weary, is much. You ever, you ever think you're really smart? Have you ever imagined to be really intelligent? I do all the time. My wife hates it. But ever since I was a little kid, I've had this ability of intelligence. Like, I remember I was nine, barely could read, write, or talk, or walk, right? And some of you will get that joke later. And uh, I imagined this machine that I could run on to exercise. But also attached to this machine would be a TV 
that I could watch Saturday morning cartoons because that was a priority in my life at nine years old. So I would get my exercise but also be able to watch Saturday morning cartoons on this. Can I tell you the first time that I saw a treadmill with a TV, how angry I was? I invented that! Come on, Peloton, Nordic Track, give me my check! That's me! There is nothing new under the sun. And the sun, this phrase under the sun is drawing ourselves to this reality. That's what Solomon's calling us to. Understand the reality of the material world and understand this. Life considered without an eternal perspective. Try to grasp this life without an eternal perspective, and it will become monotonous. It will be the same thing over and over and over again. Nothing new under the sun. But God. But God, outside of the presence of God, personified through Jesus Christ, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, outside of that presence, that is in fact true, that there is nothing new under the sun. But in the presence of God, in the center of the will of God, over and over throughout the text, over and over throughout Scripture, God reminds us of the newness and the life that those born again by His Spirit receives. In, uh, in, Isaiah, tw- in Isaiah 62, it talks about the new name that we receive. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul talks about the new community that we get to be a part of. In Psalm 91, the psalmist talks about the new help that we receive from the angels. In John 13, the writer talks about the new commandment that we get to get involved in. In Jeremiah 31, 33, Matthew 26, 28, it's spoken about the new covenant that is between God and man. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, we hear about a new and living way that leads to heaven. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul talks about this new purity that we get to be involved in. In Ephesians 4, 24, he talks about our new nature. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul talks about a new creation that is in Christ Jesus. Understand this, my friends, this morning. There is nothing new under the S-U-N, but there is something new under the S-O-N, son. I'm not saying that to be cute. I want you to understand the gravity that the preacher's talking about. nothing new in our present reality, but when I am connected new life, new hope, a new me. I remember the first time my folks took me to the circus. You remember the first time you went to the circus? You know, I was excited about the cotton candy and the Cracker Jacks, but no one told me there were going to be scary clowns there. That threw me for a loop. But my favorite part 
was watching the tightrope walkers. A spotlight would shine on the big top, and on one side of the room would be a, a, a man, a woman, who would traverse across on this wire. And we would ooh and ah and wait for them to plummet to their death. I don't know why people laugh at that joke. But I was so like, zoned in. You see, a, a tightrope walker is anchored on either end of this line, tethered. And they'll use this bar to help them to keep balance. Friends, in our lives, more often than not, we are tethered to two places, the cradle and the coffin. And in between time, in the meantime, what is it that will keep us balanced between these two points? How do we stay balanced? Solomon, throughout this book, gives us many hints at it. I boiled it down to four of them. There may be many more. One of the ways to stay balanced in this life between the cradle and the coffin is our people. Who are your people? Solomon had 1,000 wives that is a lot of voices in his life. He had seers. He had magicians. Everyone telling him what he should do and not do. And we see much folly in the life of Solomon. So when he's writing this letter and he's looking back, he's saying to himself likely, I didn't have the right people around me. Scripture tells us that actually it was some of his wives that drew him away from the commands of the Lord. So thousands of years later, what can we glean from this? It's this question, what people are you listening to? What voices matter to you most? Can I get up in your business? At 10.50 in the morning. Don't tell me you're stressed out. You're fed up. You're angsty. You're exhausted. When you spend more time listening to voices on Facebook, on Fox News, on CNN, on MSNBC, on Instagram, some of you crazies on QAnon. Like, don't tell me you're overworked, you're overtired. What people are you allowing to speak into your life? What people, what voices are you allowing to penetrate your heart? Many of your relationships, your marriages, your finances, your kids are out of sort because you're listening to the wrong voices. And then you go, Lord Jesus, come, let me fly away. And you're not living your purpose in this life because the wrong voices are going in here and setting themselves in here. When I allow that to happen in my life, let me tell you something. When I allow that to happen in my life, it does feel meaningless. 
When I'm more glued in to what the talking heads are saying, it does feel meaningless. Come on, somebody, listen to me. You know what the suicide rate is among our young people today? It's off the charts. Is it because the world is harder today than it was 20 years ago? No, it's because the voices are louder and we're not screaming to them the good news that is found in the person of Jesus Christ and saying, feed yourself on this. I don't care who you voted for. people around you. If you're not part of a small group, shame on you. Stop saying you're doing life alone. Oh, Lord, I'm preaching. I'm sorry, Pastor B. Where was I? Number two, your pace. I ain't done. Is your pace balanced? New life says I'm secure in the valley and on the mountaintop. When I am evaluating the pace that I'm moving at, that I'm walking at, I understand in the valley and in the mountaintop, God has got me. There's a consistency in my walk. There's a consistency in my relationships. There's a consistency in my marriage. Sometimes I got to go fast. Sometimes I got to go slow. Sometimes I got to sit down. Sometimes I have to stand up. And I understand it all acutely is true that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So look at me. Take a deep breath. You're running so fast. You're trying to do it all on your own. And the man who had it all is telling you, slow down. Because it's just a passing vapor. Parents with grown kids, don't you remember them running around the house? Those of you who haven't seen your loved ones in months, don't you remember those days gathering around the dinner table? This life is but a vapor in the wind. If we don't slow down and pace ourselves, if we don't reevaluate our priorities, asking ourselves what is important that may not be that important anymore. And am I willing to change course, to chart a new direction, because I have a new set of priorities? I bet Solomon looked back on his life and he said, I should have reevaluated my priorities. How about you? I think back to 1805, when some of y'all were in high school. Old people I'm talking about. Lewis and Clark are traversing from the east to the west. They're trying to find a new waterway. So they get in their boats with their 45 companions in their knee boats, and they make their way down the Missouri River. And then after a while, they meet an obstacle called the Rocky Mountains. And they have to decide, are we going to continue with our old plan, or are we going to devise a new plan? Are we going to chart a new course? And you know what those 
guys turned into, and their 45 companions, they turned into climbing canoeists. They got out the boat, put the boat on their back, and climbed over those mountains. In the last 18 months, are some of y'all still trying to row uphill? What would happen if you reevaluated your priorities? What would happen if you reevaluated what you were anchored to, what you were tethered to? I believe God would give you number four, a new perspective of how you really see this life. I told you, for many people, this life is tethered between the cradle and the coffin, but Jesus intends for our lives to be anchored between the cradle and the cross. And when I understand my limits, when I have the perspective of my limits, saying if Solomon who had it all felt this emptiness in his life, outside of the presence of God, what am I left with? I am left with a reevaluation of my perspective of this life, and I realize that I am not God, and that is okay. I realize that my life must be anchored to the cross of Jesus Christ, that there must be an emptying out of myself that I might be filled up with the Spirit of God. In Ecclesiastes 1.14, Solomon says this, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and all is striving after the wind. He is saying, look at me at the end of my life. I'm pining for God. Friends, when's the last time? You've begged for his nearness. If this man with a thousand wives, with trillions of dollars in the coffer, understanding pleasure after pleasure after pleasure, if in the weaning moments of his life he is pining for the presence of God, what has you? I read this entire book, and Pastor B is going to fill in the middle over the next couple of weeks. But look at what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. We'll go old school, KJV, King James Version. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This whole book, here's a conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. Go back to 1 Kings 2, 1 Kings 3. What did David say to Solomon? What did God say to Solomon before his 40 years of reign? Keep my commandments. Keep close to me. Your life will be empty. Your life will lack meaning. Your life will lack purpose if you are not tethered and connected to me. I love the amplified version of the same text. It says this. When all has been heard, the end of the matter is 
fear God, which what does that mean? Worship him with awe-filled reverence, knowing that he is almighty God, and keep his commands, for this applies to who? Every person. It applies to every person, and hear me this, my friends, as I close out. This life is but a vapor. This life, I guarantee you, will seem and feel meaningless. If you and I and every person that we know is not kept by the commandments of God the Father, his greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and love one another. My obedient to that word. There's some of you sitting in this room, some of you watching online, who today, you can't find the meaning to your life. And in this fallen, broken world, living outside of the garden, every moment feels like a vapor in the Marriage feels hopeless. Your relationship with your kids feels void. Your mental health is on the edge. But God. But God wants to invite you into something new. But that newness is only going to come when you submit to his command under his son. Do me a favor, close your eyes and bow your heads all across this room, those online. If you've been searching for meaning, you've been searching for purpose, there is a hopelessness in your heart, in your life. Today, God wants to give you the opportunity to tether yourself to his cross, through his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to say this prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It's just a confession, telling God what he already knows. Tell God that I am a sinner in need of saving. I am helpless, broken, and my life is without meaning. And today, because of you, Jesus, I tether myself to your cross. I accept you as my Lord, my Savior, my meaning. Jesus, come dwell in my heart. If you just said that prayer with all eyes closed, with all heads bowed, whether you're online or here in this room, I want you to just throw up a hand and say, yeah, I just said that prayer. Thank you, Jesus. And I want to encourage you after, you can put your hand down. Come down front. There's going to be some folks who want to pray with you, who want to help you with your next step. To go to the back of the room, there'll be some folks who want to pray with you, help you take your next step. If you're online, I want to encourage you to just type it in and say, I said yes to Jesus today, and someone will reach out to you. But for, us, for the rest of us, with our eyes closed, with our heads bowed, think for a moment. What area of your life needs to be tethered to the cross? 
that feels meaningless, that feels hopeless? Is it your people? Is it the pace that you're living at? Is it your priorities? Is it your perspective? Would you tell God today, God, I am emptying myself and I'm asking you to fill me back up. St. Augustus said it this way, and let this be our prayer. That the creator made a God-shaped space in each of us which can only be filled by him. Say to him today, Lord Jesus, fill that God space hole in my heart, in my marriage, in my finances, in my kids' connection, in my mental health. Fill that God-shaped hole with your holy presence. Give me today meaning. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen. Tag, you're it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.